Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont and Professor Richard LaDuke explore the early history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the life and teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith. They examine the original historical sources and provide context for events of the past. They approach the history of the Church with faith, expertise, and humor. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. In this week's episode, we are going to read a couple of emails that we've received over the past. We're way behind on reading a couple of those, and we're going to get to a question about Moroni uh, eventually, potentially. Maybe. Maybe. We don't know. We don't know. Um, This email comes to us from Larry. It will be highly redacted. Um, This is in reference. Everything Larry says has so many profanities in it. (laughs) No, no, that's not it. Every email Larry sends is just asterisk, (laughs) asterisk, 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 asterisk. No, no, no. Uh, I think he's referring to your PhD, Richard. We... (laughs) We we work very hard to not mention specific things that he mentions all of those specific things in the email, and so it would be a little defeating. Right. So this will be heavily redacted. I'll just sum it up. Hey, guys, you guys are amazing. I love you so much. Larry, there you go. That's pretty much how it goes. <laughs> that doesn't sound like Larry. That doesn't sound like Larry. <laughs> no. That's not the Larry I know. <laughs> uh I must say, I was impressed that you did both parts of hero worship without mentioning somebody. And then he says other things that would be a dead giveaway as to who that is. And then (laughs) uh, says that he had several people that were actually affected by by this very topic. Uh, and, And this is something actually is relatively near and dear to Garrett's and my heart, just from the standpoint that we have many people that we love very much that kind of get pulled into these, you know, these um, personalities that, uh, you know, that people just, just love. And and then when they do things that the church disagrees with, rather than siding with the church, they they go the other way. And it's, it's heartbreaking. Anyway, uh, he says that uh, he had several people that went down that path and he forward he forwarded the, our, uh, our episodes to them. So hopefully, Larry, that that helps but more important that they soon become a premium subscriber. Um, that's, that's always what we're, we're hoping for. We got another one on hero worship. Um, this one comes to us from uh, Deidre. hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, dear Garrett. There's no possible way. <laughs> dear Garrett and Richard, I'm very happy. Richard will soon have his doctorate. I can sense a big party coming on. Um, you're right about the party, wow. not right about I mean, it being. Close. She has a lot more faith in you than 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 and, well than you do in yourself. My wife, my friends, everyone that knows yeah. me. Uh, I am I'm not a pithy person, not witty, pretty much dry toast. I first learned of your podcast when Garrett was on another podcast, a likely one much much better than this one. She didn't say that, but we <laughs> we know. Well, uh, she I would say that. But read between the lines. Yeah, that's right. I was so impressed with the scholarship in church history. After hearing about the audacity of Dirk Moss, I was hooked. My husband isn't much of a podcast person, but I was, con- but I convinced him to start listening 
and he was hooked. I've learned so much, and my testimony has gotten more deeply rooted than ever, and I had a deep testimony. When, when you announced the premium content, I was pretty sure we were one of the, of the very first to purchase it. We've learned more about oh. church and American history than... I see why you wanted me to read this now, Garrett. Uh, well, no, thank you, Deidre. You know, she's nice. like the Rachel's mom of our premium content. Yeah, it's very nice. Rachel's mom was like the first person to click on it and download our podcast. Well, and, so, uh, so it is you know. interesting, though. One of the things we, we receive a lot of feedback, uh, most of it negative. And when we, when we do, um, much of the feedback that is negative, uh, it's actually my favorite part of doing all of this actually is when people absolutely blast us it's i i literally laugh uh out loud every time but um some of the feedback um uh, i'll paraphrase kind of i'll distill it down richard uh stop talking uh richard you're an idiot uh, and this is just from my wife. These are just emails from wow. my wife. Yeah, I was going to say, these are just Becky texting you. Hey, yeah, I was just texting me on the side. No, but so that, uh, you know, there's some, the the free episode that drops on Thursday is generally lighter fare, right? As we talk about a couple of issues and and hit a couple of things. Um, and so if you hate- And we're casting, a, we're casting a wide net. Of course. If you, if as, you if, hate, as if our presentation was in any way professional or premeditated at all. <laughs> As if, as if we weren't operating on a shoestring budget with with gifted mics with with, with, with only Deidre's money, with yeah, and with Deidre's money <laughs> with gifted uh, advertising. I mean, the, yeah. every part of the show is just a Potemkin village of fakeness. <laughs> could you? Could you? I love that reference. Could you explain quickly what what that is, really quick? Because that is that is a great I don't. Reference. I think if I did, people would call that a tangent. But yeah, uh, it's, it's on brand. Yeah, it's very fun. Yeah, the, it's a good the, reference. The Potemkin Village is a a reference to um, when the Czar was going to sail down the Volga, and. He, of course, had been receiving false reports about how wonderfully great everything was going. Because if you gave people good reports, well, then you would be murdered. Then you'd be murdered, right? So, so you don't, you know, don't shoot the messenger. Most monarchs didn't really believe that. They believe, you know what? Shoot the messenger and also the person who <laughs> sent the message, and then figure out what's going on. And so uh, the, the the czar is going to sail down the Volga. Uh, I'm leaving out all kinds of details. And so these people are sent ahead all along the way to build up fake storefronts and fake, uh, you know, essentially movie scenery um, uh, 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 along each of these villages to make it look like they were much more prosperous than they were. To have paid people come out and cheer the czar as he sails past, and that so it's a Potemkin village is a it's a false uh, uh, it's something that has a veneer that's appearing to be one thing but it's really another. And I can't, I can't think of a better way to describe <laughs> our podcast. Well, so all that to say is that if you hate the free podcast, you're going to love the premium. Um, that's what I'm saying. So if you if you don't like this, if you just want Garrett to be spitting truth about uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, the and uh, you know the American Revolution and 
Um, you know, we, we haven't gotten into rice tariffs. That'll be quite a while, but we have gotten into other uh, duties. We, we've done a lot of taxation. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we, so much. I mean, how many... How many tariffs have we talked about? I mean, so many. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, j- just to all say, kinds of excise taxes. Say, if you hate this, you're gonna love that. So, um, uh, <laughs> learned uh, in a textbook. Many times we listen several times to a single podcast to really absorb the content. I have to say, you guys get pretty silly and off topic at times. I don't have one example of that actually. Um, I, yeah. I don't think that that's ever happened. Um, I hope we shouldn't listen to the first eight minutes. Nope. And I audibly tell you to rein it in and get back on track. I am Rachel's. Uh, I am Rachel's mom, and she knows I don't do silly very often. Um, <laughs> when you were uh, telling about family mottos, <laughs> I believe mine was "Don't embarrass the family." That's the that's our the right. Leduc family motto. Um, other people, you know, return with honor. Remember who you are. Ours are like, well, just don't get arrested. Essentially, don't embarrass the family. <laughs> Um, I had to write and tell ours, which is don't bleed on the carpet. I, <laughs> uh, that I was a low six, bar. Yeah. I had six of the most rambunctious kids ever. There was always lots of blood. Well, hinge, head injuries will have lots of blood. Garrett, I believe you have a, a story for this. Yeah. Well, similar. I mean, I, I want to, I want to sympathize uh, with that family motto. Now my mom listening right now, Renee, is not going to like the fact that I'm about to tell this story. But I, my older brother and friend of the show, Dallin, <laughs> um, who's also my my friend. <laughs> so <laughs> now uh, at one point in our youth, um, I, I don't know how old we were, but we were pretty old. I mean, I was probably 12. So that'd make Dallin like 15, you know. So, I mean, we were substantial. <laughs> So we weren't, we weren't just like, you know, 10 pounds at the time. And, uh, Dallin and I were, uh, I'm sure Dallin would say he was playing. And to me, I would say I was fighting for my life because there's a, it's a very thin line between the two. And the older brother is always able to just, yeah, I was just, I was just fooling around. That's why, that's why I hit him in the face. I'm just fooling around. Just, you know, just kidding. Yeah, and for this purpose, Dallin is a is a mobster from New Jersey. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, in the course of this, we were at the top of the stairs, and he, in my memory, uh, he can email the show if he wants to present a different memory. Pushed me down the stairs, and I mean, I went down all of the stairs. I hit multiple times and I hit the bottom landing and the wall at the bottom landing so hard that my mom comes running in from the kitchen, from the other room screaming. And you know what you want to hear as you're dazed with a concussion at the bottom of the stairs, you know, because your brothers tossed you off of it. What you want to hear is, are you okay? (laughs) That is, or what are you doing? Or Dallin, stop that. Or something. Instead, the first scream was, don't break the stairs. <laughs> because I had in my audacity of, of hitting multiple of the stairs before I finally got to the landing below as my body was churning over it and, and hitting. 
I had the audacity to land with great force on multiple stairs, including the landing. Um, I asked her, I said, later, I said, Mom, I can't believe you said don't break the stairs. Her response was some, it was, you know, very much, a, you know, someone born in the 1940s. She was like, well, you know, bones heal, but we can't afford to replace the staircase. <laughs> So that was that was her excuse. Well, so and and here uh, her uh, her email gets a little little somber. So this is a little um, my heart actually aches on on this. I I've watched four of my six children leave the church and have taken most of my seventeen grandchildren with them. I never imagined that could be possible, and it has broken my heart. I feel that if they would listen to your podcast and, and several others, it would help them understand the gospel better. But I also know that you have a desire, uh, that you have to desire a testimony more than you desire other things. Thank you so much for your testimonies and all you share to help others. Keep up the good work and keep on track. Um, one, of, one of the things that um, is, is so, so difficult here, Garen and I actually were talking about this on, on Sunday. Um, you know, there's lots of reasons why folks leave the church, but one of the most heartbreaking and sad is you hope that, uh, you know, you hope that they, the main reasons aren't that they, they heard something and it's, it's not properly sourced. Maybe it's not even true in any way whatsoever. And that in, in, in that ignorance, um, they get whipped up into where they throw aside things that are, um, so sacred, so important. We, we, we just, as you know, we were talking through all of the things that you give up when you are removed from the, the church, but that is, that is heartbreaking. Yeah. I'm so sorry to hear that. I mean, the, uh, the difficult thing to, uh, see people, uh, rush to sometimes embrace things that aren't true and, and knowing that that's going to lead to pain and unhappiness, if not immediately at some point in the future. And I think that uh, that's why we always, you know, come back to focus on the fact that um, the Lord is merciful and that the bounds of his mercy are such that we don't comprehend them. And um, hopefully that gives us hope. And, and even when we're dealing with the difficult things, but to the point um, that she had made, that we love in our families, in our friend circles, people who we went on missions with, who for one reason or another have apostatized. And apostasy at any level is frustrating, but it's especially frustrating when that apostasy comes from someone who in all other respects was die hard in the gospel but just decided to follow the wrong voice in, 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 and became convinced that their political cause or their social cause was more important than the gospel. And, and so when, when a, a certain talk is given in general conference or when a certain blogger decides that they're upset with the church's policy, they they apostatize, they leave over it. And that, that was what spurred us to, to talk about it. And again, there are many examples. So 
we we could talk about that topic every single week probably and you know we'd have fewer listeners every week um, <laughs> well we currently we currently do we have every every week oh, fewer yeah fewer. so every week we're we're hoping to bottom out we started with rachel's mom we're gonna end, we're with, gonna end with rachel's mom yeah. although i think she stopped listening <laughs> we'll have to have right. rachel talk to us i saw rachel just two days ago i need to ask her is your mom still listening well, you know, it's like uh, it's like the the series Growing Pains. You know, eventually those characters are boring, and you need to bring in a young Leonardo DiCaprio to to reinvigorate the series and and bring people back. So who who's going to be our Leonardo DiCaprio? We don't even know. We don't know anybody. Well, I think I'm Tracy Gold. I think that's obvious. Nah. Um, and can, so, I mean, what am I then? The Steve Urkel of uh, <laughs> Family Matters? I mean, I don't. Oh, I, you're, what am I? You're uh, you're uh, what's his name? Cameron. Um, Kirk Cameron. <laughs> Kirk Cameron? Yeah. There are a lot of people yelling at the radio right now saying, I know Kirk Cameron. <laughs> Kirk, Kirk Cameron was a friend of mine. And you, and sir, you, sir, are no Kirk, Kirk Cameron. Cameron. All right. Well, let's keep going. All right. Uh, next subject. Great podcast. Even if you have abandoned Facebook, save, of course, you're promoting your Swampland tours. Our Swampland tours? <laughs> We don't, we don't as yet have a tour to either Louisiana or Florida, but we would like to do one. Well, I mean, Illinois. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Right. Just all of Nauvoo. (laughs) So glad I discovered your podcast a while back and even more glad I finally remembered that I found it more recently. (laughs) You should go back and listen to more uh, episodes, you know, help the, help the, the download numbers is both a gospel doctrine teacher in my ward and a seminary teacher in our stake. I'm always looking for more data to help me teach and answer questions that may and sometimes do pop up in the course of class. No doubt my newfound information about George Adams will come in handy. No, seriously. No, you know, seriously. I, no, I no, think if you can't work George Adams into your seminary class, you are, you're failing. You're failing them. Well, yeah. Well, I will say, you know what? You hold up, hold on through 2023 you hold on through whatever garbage we're throwing at you in 2024, but 2025, man, for seminary teachers and gospel doctrine teachers everywhere, oh, we're back to playing the hits. Come follow me. We'll be back in uh, gospel doctrine uh, for you know for the doctrine covenants, and it is it's it's go time on idol. That's this this yeah. podcast will be wonderful as long as I don't find a George Adams to worship and follow before then. <laughs> the humor and tomfoolery, uh, that's a first, uh, with which you both infuse church history is quite hysterical at times. Well, I don't think you need to put it times. You could. I mean, yeah, she could have just it. left that open always. Often reminding me of the old sports radio duos I enjoyed during my college years in North Texas. You know, go go TCU. That was a, was a brutal loss to, to the North Cougars. Texas. She's got to be saying mean green. You think she's a she lives in Denton? No, wait, the University of North Texas. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, come on, though. I mean, maybe. so I don't think she said North Texas, meaning Dallas, did she? Or did or well, I, just assume, I assume I assume it means not Houston or San yeah. Antonio. Anything or that's not Houston or Brownsville is yeah. North <laughs> maybe you're right. Maybe it's Amarillo. Um, Amarillo by morning. I don't care that much about sports, even when the Cowboys were beating the snot out of the okay. building. 49ers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> I just enjoyed laughing along with the radio guys, having a good time and riffing with each other. Gratefully, I extracted my head from be- uh, from my behind about 2016 <laughs> and gave talk radio the boot. Podcasts, audiobooks, and even silence are much better. Um, we hear that a lot about our podcast. I don't know if that says about us. <laughs> I have found that silence is better than most podcasts. Yeah. Wait, do you mean that Simon and Garfunkel song? No, no, no. No, no, no. Just quiet. Yeah. Just meditation. (laughs) Nevertheless, thank you for bringing to mind more innocent times in American history. Um, (laughs) Back when uh, Bill Clinton was the biggest threat we could muster as a nation or so it seemed. Your recent episode on hero worship, part two specifically, is brought is what brought me to the keyboard. I wanted to cheer loudly while listening to Garrett diss on the discord and stupidity that is letting our politics become more important than the gospel and replacing our heavenly king with flawed flesh, thinking the outcome of doing so won't be worse than when the San Andreas fault actually blows its gasket. Although, as I found myself forwarding the episode to a friend, it was a bit weird that I had to add to my text. Every episode before this was packed with humor, but Garrett is dead <laughs> serious for the for most Don't of worry, the Don't worry, we're not sorry. I, w- I will say, like I know we've already said this here. It it is just the most frustrating uh, thing, which is why Garrett spoke about it so eloquently in the last uh, couple episodes. Um, At least angrily, yet, yes, angrily as well. Yet it was exceedingly appropriate that you were. My friend and I have discussed this very subject over and over. I've even touched the third rail a time or two or four or five in my classes to suggest, okay, say firmly, that as long as the brethren are ticking off people on both sides of the aisle, they are doing something right. That comment never fails to draw some sharp breaths and uncomfortable seat shifting from my more polarized friends on both sides of politics. I staunchly believe that if Lord is it I isn't our knee jerk response to hearing something with which we disagree, we are not in the right place to receive revelation, let alone be taught by the prophets. I remember actually um, Garrett and I, when we were living in a, in a house that was broken up into four apartments, and his in his kitchen was a hallway. I remember our elders quorum president in the Utah State 482nd ward or whatever it was. Yeah, um, it was like it was seriously like, like in the hundreds. It was like the 132nd it was, it was ward. A lot. It was it was a lot. Um, but the elders quorum president had a certain political leaning. Great guy, um, but had a certain political leaning, and um, I had an opportunity to speak with him after um I, I think garrett you you did as well right he had a certain feeling about a certain thing that was going on in the world mm-hmm. and president hinckley made a made a comment about that thing that was different from his opinion and it was it was a pretty special thing like the example garrett gave from the student in his class where he where his response was more like what's being said here lord is it i and his response was, I think I probably ought to rethink that, that thing. And it was, um, it was, it was quite beautiful, actually. Um, 
anyhow, thank you for uh, for confirming my beliefs. Well, that's that's the key, right? <laughs> you, you, you come for the tomfoolery, you stay for the fact that we confirm your biases. That's yeah, what we're looking yeah, that's for. That's right. That's right. If we would have said the opposite, anyway, no one gets no one gets hurt that way. Besides, you are both such important influencers. That's that's adorable. That is hilarious. Well, I no appreciate doubt, that. No doubt the prophet agrees with you too. I bet at least President Nelson, if not a full third of the first presidency has a premium subscription i i i i can guarantee you that no one important listens to us at all except for except darla obviously and dj and larry except for yourself yeah yeah. those the people who email very no one with keys no way yeah we yeah. mean bishops. And I mean, we like mean teachers. I mean, like no. I mean, like janitorial keys. I mean, people who lock up the building <laughs> at night. None of them listen. Uh, oh yes. By the way, listening from Houston. Well, I wasn't even close. Now, whether you count me as a listener in the South, uh, Texas as a whole, or Houston, which would eat alive many other states just based on geographic square miles, let alone population. I'll leave that to you. Have a great week and keep smashing those download. Records, Darla. Darla, that is an absolute. I, I love that. I love the fact that uh, even in all of that, her Texas, you know, nationalism comes out. You know, oh no question, we're, we're bigger than all the other states. Just so you know, <laughs> Alaska would like a word. We're yeah, not that big in Alaska. Well, the problem is they'd have to find at least one person who could come down and talk to you. <laughs> you have to walk three hundred miles to find one guy. Um, so- Sorry, go ahead, Garrett. No, I was just going to say thank you so much for that email, Darla. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I really do feel that way. And that's part of the reason Richard and I both feel that way. And both Richard and I have had our personal beliefs at times, you know, challenged, rocked, felt, you know, differently by things that are presented, taught, or understood uh, in, in church doctrine. And that, that is why our, our knee-jerk reaction needs to be I follow the prophet. That's what I do. I follow the prophet because I believe the prophet is a special witness of Jesus Christ. And I follow Jesus Christ. Now I follow the prophet because I follow Jesus. And if the prophet who's the special witness for Jesus says, this is what we believe, then it's hard to find a better expert on that right? Oh, wait a minute. I talked to a guy who used to work in that industry and he says the prophet's wrong about that. Well, congratulations to that guy. Uh, The whole point of having a prophet is the prophet sees what we cannot. He is a seer and he reveals what it is that we would not otherwise believe and understand. And that's that's what being a Latter-day Saint is. It's part of your baptismal covenant. It's part of, part of your baptism. Uh, your, your interview is accepting that God has a restored church on the earth today. And, and you know, that, in fact, is kind of going to lead us into our next topic. So we, we received this email a while ago. In fact, we believe um, that the child of the person who wrote this is possibly applying to colleges uh, this fall. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they're one of Andrew's mission companions. <laughs> they're insane. Oh, I got to send those. Like, I totally forgot to do that. I I was guilted into it in the other emails. I'm going to send those out. When you start talking, uh, you know, on the topic, I'll just start ignoring you. I'll send those links out to those missions. Yeah, that'll be great because then while I say, what do you think, Richard? And then it's just dead silence. And then not only are the people listening not listening, my co-host isn't listening. <laughs> that's 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 the Richard LeDuc guarantee. Uh, dear Dirk Moss and Professor LeDuc, I'm currently in, I just, I'm currently in active labor at the hospital and listening to your, <laughs> this is by far the, we have never had anyone write us an email while they were in labor. I will say, I will say, um, my general jovial nature is something that my wife, uh, puts up with uh most of the time and enjoys occasionally um but at the time that we've had our five children i don't think i've ever been less funny in anything i have ever said and one of the great tragedies in my life has i've lived a fairly charmed life obviously is that our son max was due to be induced on the 5th of may and I had put together a, a playlist of nothing but mariachi music to play during yeah, make, childbirth. I was very excited about it. It makes sense. Yeah. The hospital rejected our insurance and he ha we had to go to a different hospital. And so he was born on the 7th of May instead of the 5th. And I... I still am heartbroken about that, by the way. My wife, I'm, it, it saved our marriage, obviously, because she would not have found that hilarious at all. On the, sure. thir on the 13th version of La Cucaracha, I'm pretty sure she wouldn't have uh, enjoyed it as much. But <laughs> anyway, um, I'm currently in active labor at the hospital and listening to your podcast that came out today. If that doesn't get this email read, I don't know what will. I will say the standard of truth promise that we make to all of you is if you're listening to a podcast and emailing us while in labor um then we will read your we will read your emails but only after the child has already received the ironic priesthood or gone to her first high school dance yes yeah, seriously so this comes to us from rebecca how was how was it when uh, your child received their patriarchal blessing last week um yeah all right uh, my husband already listened to the, the episode this morning, but gets to re-listen to it now with me. My husband is also delighted that today is the 21st of September. Well, there we go. A little earth, wind, and fire action. Um, yeah. 21st of September, because it's the anniversary of Moroni's visit with Joseph Smith regarding the gold plates. The 200th anniversary, no less. It also happens to be the anniversary of the day he proposed to me. Yep, we're cool like that and got engaged late at night. Did he plan that? Just like so this Verona is my did. question. Did he plan to get engaged on Moroni Day? If so, he he basically needs to be a co-host at this point. I mean, if, <laughs> well, if that's, he's that he's, church. He's our Leonardo DiCaprio. That's what that's what Exactly. We, we've got to bring him in. If he was like, you know what? You know what? What would be more special? Then giving you a treasure, then when the treasure from the earth came. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how he did it. That's pretty that was pretty good. Um, yeah. but he made it perfectly clear to me that it was the Joseph Smith stuff that made this an exciting day for our son's birth, unless our oh. engagement of marriage. 
Well, you know, spiritual oh. things are important as well. I know that Dr. Dirk Mott sometimes likes to find an email that will introduce a topic he just wants to talk about. Think Mormon <laughs> Battalion. <laughs> well, Rebecca, that's, I mean, to, to break the, you know, the fourth wall on that, I mean, 100%. Yes, I, I need people to write emails asking about the particulars of of uh, you know the Council of Fifty debates. <laughs> That's what I need. Uh, I also realize you did recently touch on this topic, though, because we listened to the premium content and so have already heard some great stuff from you about Joseph getting the plates. Yes, there's a uh, there's a premium episode on uh, crinkling leaves, or as Garrett would call it, holy places from our past, where Garrett talked about the Hill Cumorah and the receiving of the plates and the lessons learned from Joseph on being able to not receive them and then eventually receive them. I highly recommend that episode. Rather than using this email to talk about Moroni, you can use this email to talk about one of the early apostles, Heber C. Kimball. He would be a good tie-in for the apostles and apostates and apothecaries. She doesn't mention that here. Episodes uh, no, you've no. been avoiding. It's funny. We avoid polygamy. Apostles and apostates right. are just poor planning. Well, the, I mean, there's so many to choose from. There's so many. And then we always have, you know, we're trying to be topical. And so we get all these emails. And so we're like, you know what? Next week, we're going to do, we're going to do John C. Bennett. And then we get, you know, someone's in labor and says, read our email. And so, all right, we'll read our email. Topical. Well, I mean, you know. talking about? I mean, the restoration's ongoing. <laughs> right now. Yeah. This is, this is like well, an episode I, well, of I Law and Order. Talk about this. No, you this, actually this, have, you, you have hit uh, something I, I'm excited to talk about. Okay. Well, yes. Well, so, but first of all, Garrett, you describing this like it's a, a law and order preview where it's ripped from the headlines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ripped from the, ripped from the headlines and it's all, you know, black and white and like. Yeah. So they didn't even know that George Adams had gone to Palestine. Yeah. Uh, apostles, apostates, and ap apothecaries episodes you've been avoiding. Here's why. Despite the obvious opportunity, we will not be naming our son Moroni Joseph or any uh, or anything of similar tribute. We're sticking with the name we already picked out for him, which is Heber William. This would also be the opportunity to talk about Heber J. Grant. They were both great Hebers, so have at it. Even if you don't want to talk about Moroni's visit or either of the Hebers, I'm still in labor at the hospital listening to your podcast from today so please read my email thanks for everything you do we've been listening since episode one thank you oh, rebecca awesome. yeah um well first of all rebecca i mean i hope everything went well i i believe we did email and said we hope everything was okay we didn't hear back from that email so you're gonna have to now email again uh or maybe i I, 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 that email hasn't gone through. I don't know. Well, there, there but, is, uh, there is, there is a, uh, a PS here. I'm, I'm the oh. one who sent the story uh, a few months ago about my three-year-old who I was surprised to discover knew how to pr properly pronounce Dirk Mott and says she likes to hear him laughing loud. So there you go. Oh, there you man. go. Look at that. See, we have one person who likes us. The three well, probably not anymore. Well, because she's probably no. 17 now. Well, first of all, so you're hearing what you want to hear. She didn't say that she liked us. What she said Just was like, she knows yeah. how to pronounce your name. 
That's very different. Right. To me, that seems to be a win. <laughs> I take no it my wins. Win. Small, those, look, there's a lot of good topics she gave us there that we could easily do. Um, but I think we will tackle a little bit. I know it's a little bit after Moroni Day. Um, and by the time this drops, it's a little bit closer to Halloween. Um, but um, I, I think there's a couple of things that I want to talk about with this just because Joseph Smith and getting the plates is such a, it is such an odyssey that Moroni is going to, I mean, shepherd young Joseph Smith through. Now, maybe some of this we will have touched on, on the premium content, but this is important enough that we're going to talk about it with 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 everybody you know even even the the people who who sent us an email saying my my flesh is willing but my wallet is weak <laughs> um i uh, i want to set the stage a little bit more about the mindset joseph is in when he first meets the angel moroni now just as a little bit of a of a refresher i mean for for those listening it's important to remember what kind of a life Joseph Smith had growing up. He had a loving family. Okay. So we had that going for him. He had, he had his, his mother and father uh, seemed to very much care about him and he seemed to very much care about them. I mean, we, we really don't have any negative uh, reports on that on either side, but his family is a traveling family. And, you know, some of our Listeners, no doubt, could relate to moving multiple different times in the space of a short time when they were kids and how much that throws off your your rhythm. Well, that's certainly what's going on with Joseph, right? He, he's born in Vermont in 1805. When he's six years old, his family's going to pick up and move to New Hampshire. And, and that's where he's going to contract the, the disease that will lead to that, that leg operation. And and shortly after that, I mean, he's going to have that operation. Obviously, that's rough. He's, he's you know, very difficult circumstances of recovery, not only the pain of the surgery, but also the recovery. So when he's eight or nine, his parents actually moved back to Vermont, but they moved to a different town in Vermont. All this while, the Smiths are not getting ahead financially. And in fact, they are, they're struggling. And it's when Joseph Smith is 10, when he's 10 years old. So think of, you know, Rebecca's, you know, child is probably 10 at this point by the time we answer her email, uh, not her three-year-old, the baby just born. Um, when he was 10, their family's going to move again, this time pretty far away to Palmyra, New York. So that's in, in late 1816, early 1817. What is going on with the family during that time? Well, they are in very deep financial distress. They're in financial troubles for lots of things. Father Smith is going to invest in various different things, trying to ha catch a break, to have things work out. And either through bad luck or through, I mean, frankly, chicanery. There are people who def defraud him the Smiths keep ending up back at square one while other people around them 
are able to achieve this American dream. Now you have to dive really deep back. You know, Rebecca and Deidre, they'll know because they've been all the way back. They've been with us from, from day one. But if you're just joining us right now, well, you already stopped listening. So if you just joined us last week and you're looking for something, you know, maybe replicable, um, the, it's so essential to understand how much of a person's self-worth and their value was tied up into their ability to achieve a modicum of independence. And by 1816, Father Smith has repeatedly failed. And in fact, he comes back to Lucy, comes back to Lucy after going on a trip to Western New York. And he says to her, we need to move. We need to move to, to Palmyra. Now, I don't know what Lucy's reaction is. She, she gives no hint in her biography, in, in her book. She doesn't give any hint that she was upset. I mean, you'd think after, you know, moving five times in five years that she might be like, I don't know, Joseph, what if we just didn't move again and just tried to make it work here? You know, uh, some of you have probably also had that conversation with uh, spouses where it's like, Hey, you know what? I think we just need to move and try another ward. Will you just stop fighting with the second counselor? We don't always have to move because you two disagree over who you should have picked in last week's football game, but for entertainment purposes only. Um, Presently, 2005 April General Conference. But he says to her that we need to go we need to go to New York and he, and he makes a very specific claim to her. He says, because there you can raise wheat in abundance. That's what she writes. Now, remember she's writing this decades later. She's writing in 1844 and then it's going to be edited. And then actually uh, that, that manuscript that we're most familiar with Lucy's book is, is from 1845, but we have the 1844 manuscript too. And she's writing about something that happened in 1816, okay? So she, she's essentially looking back three decades ago. But that really sticks in her mind enough that that's what she's writing about. In fact, saying that if we go to Palmyra, and look, this area of up, upstate New York is uh, sometimes called at that early stage in American history, the breadbasket of the country. It is a place where wheat grows like crazy. It's like roses outside of my current house. I don't know what it is about Spanish Fork, Utah, and how my house is situated. I have a green thumb. In fact, I am completely worthless outside. I can do manual labor that my wife tells me to do. And even then I do it begrudgingly. I do it poorly. And, you know, usually she just does it herself because I'm so bad at it, right? But we have rose bushes that they grow. It doesn't matter what you do. It is the most perfect climate there is for growing roses. They grow like crazy. They'd be trees if we didn't chop them down over and over and over again. Well, this is what the reports of the country are for, for raising wheat. Now, why does that matter so much? Well, to delve a little bit into, uh, you know, please stay with me. If you've gotten this far, stay with me. But But I'm going to talk about American financial panics and wars from the mid 18 teens. <laughs> does that, does that, is that how we get our listeners? You were saying I we think, need to drive. Yeah. Down. I think we got everybody back with that tease. You bet. Really? So, you know, 
What you don't know is that when the War of 1812 came to a conclusion, um, in the in the years following the War of 1812, I mean, this early period in American history, you think the world's on fire now. Man, think about the world in that Joseph Smith grew up in. The entire time Joseph Smith was alive up to this point, the entirety of Europe, and that meant most of the world because of the European colonies, were at war with the Napoleonic Wars. You had battle after battle after battle. Everything was unhinged that entire time he was growing up. And the United States themselves gets drawn into the war, in the War of 1812. Because of all of this upheaval, prices for especially foodstuffs had gone through the roof. Gone through the roof. Why? Well, because every crop yield in Europe has either a British or a Prussian or an Austrian or a Russian army marching across it at some point during the, the, the early 1800s and in the 18-teens. These, the war was so destabilizing, so much destruction occurred from the Napoleonic Wars, that there was a demand for American foodstuffs that was through the roof. And on top of that, the American population itself was booming. So you had internal demand as well as this massive, massive, massive external demand. And in fact, Lucy even records in her book that Father Smith had said, you can sell wheat for $2.50 a bushel, $2.50 a bushel. Now, so the, the plan is we're going to move to, we're going to move to Palmyra and we are going to get a hold of some land. I don't know how we're going to do it because we don't have any money, but we're going to work until we have enough money to buy land. It's the whole American dream. The American dream in the 19th century is I'm going to work to save up enough money to buy land so that I can then raise enough crops on it to buy more land so that I can then raise enough crops on it to buy more land until I can get to the point where I'm self-sufficient. And this is the Smith's dream. And in fact, in Lucy's book, she talks about how they actually all sat down as a family, they had a family council, probably more, probably a little bit more uh, helpful than my family councils. My family councils, uh, when I hold them, I have a bunch of teenage participants. Uh, they are not um, they are not problem solvers uh, or willing to offer opinions on anything unless it directly affects them, and then their response is just whatever is most selfish. Um, but you know, we want to have the we like to have the 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 image of democracy, even though we all know it's a dictatorship. And Angie is essentially. Napoleon, in this case, she's going to be the one who decides. Um, but they get together and they discuss what are we going to do? And they make the decision. We have got to, to use all of our means to try to get property. Why? Because once we get property, then we can plant this wheat on it. The wheat is worth so much right now. If we can just get one, two, three harvests out, we are going to be 
golden. We, I mean, that's probably a little bit too much of a pun with wheat, but you know, uh, um, we're, we're going to be great. We're going to, we're going to finally pull ourselves out of this poverty and we're going to take part in this, you know, American dream. And you know what? There's no reason for them to think that even though the war had ended, the war of 1812 ends in 1815 and the Napoleonic Wars also end in 1815. And so you might think, well, then there's going to be a coming crash of the market, but the crash didn't happen yet right away. Pregnant pause. In 1816, things were still cooking along. There was every reason to believe that the world had become so hooked on American production that things were just going to keep going up and up and up and up and up. You might all know somebody, and I pray it's none of ourselves, who happened to buy a house uh, two or three months before everything collapsed in 2008. And they bought a house that was incredibly high price with probably a high interest rate. And then the bottom fell out and, and it was a disaster, right? For the Smiths, they arrive in Palmyra with nothing. In fact, Lucy says, we didn't have a penny to our name when we got there. So what do they do? They have to start hiring themselves out. They hire out their labor and eventually they're going to start working on other people's farms trying to save money. Lucy, you know, begins painting tablecloths in order to save money. Um, they, they, they hire out their labor. They're, they're selling things, you know, from uh, to anyone in town as they can so that they can get money with the express purpose of purchasing land so that they can then take part in this wheat bonanza that's going on. Well, they work really hard at it through 1817, right? They incur a bunch of debts. They get their land. And, it, you know, in, in one of those demonstrations that just because you're good doesn't mean that God's going to make everything happen perfectly for you, the, no sooner do the Smiths buy land at the very height of the market and they buy farming implements at the very height of the cost of those things. And they they buy seed and they everything they buy is as expensive as it has ever been in American history. No sooner do they do that, that the bottom falls completely out of the wheat market and the agricultural market in general in the country. Europe stops importing as much American goods. And so many more people were moving to the United States and guess what all they all wanted to do. Well, they all wanted to do exactly what the Smiths did and that's move West, find some land and grow wheat because it was worth so much. Well, when everybody wants to go grow wheat, it doesn't take Richard's PhD in business to know that there might be a repression of prices coming down the line. There might be a correction of sorts if there's this overproduction. So wheat in December of 1816, okay, when the Smiths are first getting there to Palmyra, it's selling for $2.53 a bushel. As the panic of 
1819 sets in. That's what it's called, the Panic of 1819. It's the worst recession in American history uh, up until the Great Depression, actually. Um, but it's something that no one ever hears about because, you know, it was a long time ago and I stopped listening to the podcast before we got to the 50th minute. Um, but prices were $2.53 a bushel by December of 1819. Wheat prices were now a dollar a bushel by December of 1820. So the same year that Joseph Smith had his first vision. Wheat prices are only worth 68 cents a bushel. So, so as a, you know, to provide a frame of reference, um, to uh, one acre would yield nine to 10 bushels of wheat. The Smiths would have what? 20 acres cleared. Depending. They're clearing more and more all the time. So we don't have exact figures, but yeah. So, I mean, it's, Two two dollars and fifty three cents. So let's let's just you know let's just say it's twenty acres, right? So well, we can we could say if if the Smiths harvested fifty bushels of wheat, right? Let's say they whatever whatever many acres is. Let's say they have fifty bushels. Okay, in eighteen sixteen, those fifty bushels are worth one hundred twenty six bucks, one hundred twenty six fifty, right? The exact same amount of wheat. In 1820, the year of the first vision, is worth $34. Now, everybody listening to me, I want you to think about what it would do to your family financial situation if your income was cut by roughly, what is that, 75%? Yeah, pretty dramatic. Imagine. Imagine if your income was cut by 75%. And the and we all know this, at least the people who own homes or cars who don't really own them like me, you know, the bank owns them and I I rent them from the bank, but the bank lets me think that I own them. And whenever I want to find out whether or not I own them, I just stop making a payment and the bank very quickly informs me that uh I don't actually own them. Um and uh uh we all know that The problem with making 75% less than you made the year before is the bank doesn't adjust your debts. The bank doesn't say, you know what? You did owe us this much on your mortgage, but you know, I see you've had a hard time. So you know what? We're going to lower that down. Well, so, I mean, let's say that it was 40 acres, 40 acres at a 10 yield puts you at about $1,012 on 40 acres, right? With that kind of a yield. Okay. So if the average, if the average laborer income for a year is around $300, well, okay. A pretty, pretty good wheat harvest is going to net you three X times what you would make as a general laborer. Yeah. And you bought a house at that price. And, and the, now, land that you're, the land that you're farming. It the was land that you're farming. when you bought it. Yeah. And and now that same amount of land and that same wheat production, you are at $272 per year for the same production, it's, which it, is dramatically less than even a day laborer's annual income. And now it's you're just, you're, you're, it's, it's, you're dead. You're broke. And, and it's, brutal. and the even worse part about this is, okay, so what are you going to do? 
Well, farmers in America don't really have a whole lot of options, right? So, you know, it's not like I can start, you know, smelting ore here. <laughs> I, I, what do I have? I have land that I don't own that the bank owns or the person I owe the note to owns. Um, so I can try to clear more timber and grow more wheat, which of course farmers do that because even at diminishing returns, what am I going to do? In fact, farmers are very similar to professors, right? Uh, I, I say this having worked on potato farms my whole life growing up um, in the sense that you don't really have a whole lot of other ways to make an income, right? I mean, sure, you can go get another job, but that other job is going to take time out of your farming and isn't going to be a very high paying job because you're not an expert at being a Walmart greeter. You, you know, you're an expert at farming. It's similar for a professor. Like, you know, Richard occasionally has people ask him for his consulting uh, expertise because Richard is a brilliant businessman. No one ever contacts me ever for any reason ever saying, Hey, you know what? I need some historical consulting. Uh, uh, you know, you know what? Maybe there'd be a lot better fictionalized books written uh, uh, about Latter-day Saint history if someone was contacting me. But no, that's not what's happening. And so a farmer's going to either, well, they'll do lots of things. They're going to find ways to try to shore things up. But one way that they'll all do is if they have land that's not yet cleared, they'll go clear more land. And in fact, what is Joseph Smith doing in 1820? What's he doing? When he has the first vision, he is out clearing land. One of the accounts we have of the first vision is he goes to where he had his ax stuck in the tree where they were clearing land. Well, why are they clearing land in 1820? They're clearing land because the bottom fell out of everything. And by the way, in the midst of the bottom falling out of everything, in the midst of going into a huge amount of debt, believing that you'd be able to easily repay it only to have the market completely collapse on you in the midst of that, your biggest asset, Alvin Smith's labor goes away because Alvin dies in November of 1817. I mean, sorry, in November of 1823, sorry. Uh, uh, but in the midst of trying to repay this, you lose one of your laborers. So, so this whole time period is one of extreme difficulty and poverty. Joseph talks about this, right? Owing to the indigent circumstances of my father's family, we were required to labor hard. I mean, Joseph talks all about it. That the only other thing you could do is, okay, we can clear more land of our own. And as, of course, as every other farmer does the same thing, the wheat prices continue to go down and down and down because now there's just more wheat on the market. And the second thing you can do is you can take the only other thing that you own, and that is your labor, and you can sell it. You can go sell your labor to try, try to make up some of these ends meets. And that's exactly what Joseph and Hiram and Alvin, and uh, to uh, some extent that we don't know because we don't have those same records, certainly Sophronia um, and Lucy. Mac are doing that as well.
the whole family at the same time that the first vision is going on is desperate to try to recover these financial losses and things just keep getting worse, right? When wheat prices drop from two fifty to a dollar seventy, that's a massive drop. And I'm sure the Smiths were like, you know what? It's got to recover. I mean, it couldn't possibly stay almost a dollar lower for forever, right? And then by the next year, it's an it's an even dollar lower than that. I mean, there. This the reason why I'm I'm talking about this as I set the stage for what we're going to talk about with with Moroni is the one of the most fundamental things to understand about Joseph Smith in these formative years is that poverty is the most pressing thing that is going on in his family. It's what his family has schemed to try to get out of by trying to find ways to work. Even before that, his father is is moving from place to place to place to try to escape it. There is not just the economic pressure of poverty that weighs down on you every single day. We can't make our bills. We can't pay our our, our rents. We can't we can't make our ends meet. On top of the actual economic pressures, and anyone who suffered financial reverses knows exactly what I'm talking about. On top of that, there is this social pressure. The, this this idea that you're a failure. If you think people look askance at you today in America when you get laid off from your job, you should go back to Calvinist 19th century America, where they literally believe that every single thing that happens is God's will. And if you just don't seem to be able to make ends meet, well, I know why you can't make ends meet. Because you aren't chosen by God. So societally, you have this pressure pressing down, whispers and looks. Now, it's weird that we do that because it's not like the Smiths are the only people who got hit by the Panic of 1819. It's estimated that a third, a third of farmers in some areas lost their farms. I mean, it is a complete and total economic disaster in America. But the Smiths are caught up in it. So in our next episode, we're going we're gonna to pivot a little bit from talking about the poverty to talking about the actual appearance of Moroni. But I had to set the table here. The reason why I had to set the table is Moroni is going to appear multiple times. Not just three times in that night, he's going to appear over and over and over and over again. And the reason why he's going to appear over and over and over again is because there is a raw lump of clay named Joseph Smith that is going to have to be shaped if he is going to become the protector of the plates and eventually the prophet and the restorer of the priesthood of God on earth. So we will talk about that next week. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com.
Until next time.